Backstage Pass Radio is now a global podcast heard in 70 countries around the world. Our newly formed partnership with Synad Outdoor has us seeing great traction in Texas and Louisiana. Since Synad's beginnings in 1964, this family-owned and operated advertising company has become the largest independently held billboard company in Texas today. Synad prides itself on unbeatable service and turnaround time. Let their experienced design team create the perfect advertisement to showcase your business. Contact Synad today at 713-861-6013. And also make sure to visit their website at www.synad.com and tell them Backstage Pass Radio sent you. Hey, you guys, I will be treating you all to a bonus episode today. So we will be going a little off the topic of music, but I know you'll find the interview to be quite special. It's Randy Holsey here with Backstage Pass Radio. And I ran into today's guest in Malibu a few weeks back doing an interview with Bethany Heavenstone, the bass player for the Graham Bonnet Band while I was in town. And we spoke at a cool surf shop on Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu. And it wasn't until after I got back to the hotel in Woodland Hills that I found out who I was chatting with. I can assure you all that you won't want to miss my in-depth conversation with Jefferson Zuma J. Wagner when we come back. This is Backstage Pass Radio, the podcast that's designed for the music junkie with a thirst for musical knowledge. Hi, this is Adam Gordon, and I want to thank you all for joining us today. Make sure you like, subscribe, and turn alerts on for this and all upcoming podcasts. And now, here's your host of Backstage Pass Radio, Randy Halsey. Jay, welcome to the show, man. It's good to see you. Well, thanks for having me, and nice to see you after the last few weeks of... uh missing anybody from texas i'm glad to hear back from you yeah right on and it looks like you're still in the shop right now so you you haven't even gone home for the day have you no i'm i'm uh here till closing and then uh, after closing it's the paperwork and that's the worst part of it right the paperwork's always the worst part of it yeah, the government wants to help me out with the taxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course they do. Well, it's good to see you, man. You know, like I said, my brother and I had a nice little chat with you back in February when we were there doing some interviews for my podcast. And it's a treat to have you on with me today. So I, I don't know if you remember the conversations, but I'm going to give you a trivia question like right off the bat. And I have to ask you. If you ever found the right color of blue paint to paint that handicap logo in the parking lot. I have. I've been instructed <laughs> by the uh, authorities at the Jess Unruh Act for Disability. And uh, I have the proper blue. It's in a Pantone blue. And I have the proper numbers, finally. Nice. So there's actually an official name for that that blue, and we won't get into the detail of what we're even talking about, but I thought that was funny that, that I even remember you telling me that story, and we were all, my brother and I were just like, what, are you serious? Like, what? what? That's so crazy. But, uh, yeah, so I, I guess the first topic should probably be, since we're kind of talking about the shop, that's where we met, and Zuma J's surf shop in Malibu, California, I mean, you're going on like close to 50 years in, in the shop, correct? Yeah, that's, uh, I've been retailing in this shop for almost 50 years. Okay, wow. And, uh, shaping and fabricating surfboards from scratch in the late 60s. 
Well, that's a long time to be doing, I guess, anything. And it's it's interesting because you've been successful there in Malibu, but you were born up in Palm Springs, if if my readings are correct, right? Yeah, it's uh, about two and a half, three hours east of Malibu is Palm Springs. And a very desert, dry community. And I was there at the Palm Springs Desert Hospital. And now that hospital has even been dismantled and a new one put up. That's how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even five years, things just change sometimes. You opened that shop in, what was it, 19, what, 74, 75, somewhere around there? I just did got out of college, graduated from University of the Pacific uh, up in Stockton, California, kind of a, a western town kind of thing at the time. Then I uh, had already had the name, and now I opened the shop in 75 at the, the location, which was on Zuma Beach. And then in 79, I incorporated. Okay. We, got there, we started selling more than 10 T-shirts a week. Figured there'd be some lawyers, so I better get incorporated. So Yeah. 79 when I started here. Okay. Well, and it was, now that I think about it, you know, I kind of write this little outline for all the guests that I have on my show. And I do that because I'm getting old myself and I can't remember what I want to talk to people about sometime, but I also want the show to flow, you know, and not get off, get off topic. But I don't think I had written anywhere in the outline. Now that I think about it, to ask you what Zuma meant. Like us Texans have no idea what Zuma Beach is. So it's interesting to find out from you that it's actually a beach in California, right, is where Zuma came from. That's correct. In fact, there's some music celebrities that have named their children after Zuma Beach and uh, A-list celebrities in your industry. But uh, Zuma Beach is uh, north of the store about five or six miles. It's a a three-and-a-half-mile-long beach. It's very sandy, and it looks like something out of a Florida movie scene. But it's uh, been there since the mid-60s. Okay. And is this considered a a good surf beach or not so much known for surfing? No, Zuma is known for the the wonderful beach. Okay. place to learn to surf by just struggling to go straight in. Okay. Not moving with the wave. You just go straight in on the white water. I got you. A lot of people getting taught how to surf at Zuma. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. And if my memory serves me correctly, I guess back in 70, 75 ish, you know, 75, 76, somewhere around there, this is when the skateboard craze started in California with the famous Z boys, correct? Yes. The Z boys, they were in uh, Santa Monica and Venice and down in that area. Mar Vista, another community just right next to Venice. And that's where they started uh, in the empty pools. That's interesting. But, and, and they started out as a surf team, did they not? They surfed and skated. Okay. Comboed the both. Uh, the pools were had water in them that didn't get pumped out, and they became mosquito nests. Uh, then they'd surf. Okay. High, and they got smart enough to sweep them clean in the in the deep end. Then they'd skate. Interesting. Well, I was you know even being a Texan, I, I remember that whole California craze back in the day, and I really followed it closely. Uh, even though, I mean. 
we rode skateboards as kids, but I mean, it, it was a phenomenon going on out there, correct? And, and but were, did you ever come from the skateboarding side of the house, or did you not ever mess with the skateboards? Oh, no, I, I had skateboards since I was, uh, they were steel wheels in the 50s. Okay. However, what changed it and made it so uh, popular was the uh, complexity of the wheels themselves. They became clay-wide wheels, mm-hmm. and then urethane. And in the 70s, that's when that proliferated, was that changing and moving toward better wheels and trucks. Mm-hmm. That happened. That's when the skill level got better and the uh, ability to go down into the pool and come up and do ollies and yeah. all the stuff that skateboarding is about now. Sure. Happened after clay wheels and everything became urethane. Yeah. I remember having this little cheap skateboard as a kid in the, in the trucks. The trucks were about this wide on that thing. They barely even st- the wheels barely even stuck out from the sides of the the skateboard. And then I remember, you know, that was like a little plastic skateboard, right? And then and then there was this whole wooden skateboard with the grip tape on top. And and some names that come to mind are like Santa Cruz and and GNS and a lot of these skateboards and. I wanted to mow yards and get one of those great skateboards that had trucks about this wide on it with the really cool wheels, right? <laughs> another another uh, person that implemented all that was Pal Peralta. Yes. Peralta. Yes, yes. And I, and, and, and I was going to mention him in just a second, but I know the surf community is probably a very tight-knit one and I'm gonna assume that since you were down there in the 70s, I mean, you had to. Did you know some of these guys from what became the Lords of Dogtown, like Peralta and Jay Adams and Peggy Oki, and any of these people on the on the Zephyr team? Sure did. Uh, I met them all at one time or another because I was from up here in Malibu, north of Santa Monica, Venice, and Mar Vista. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hung out up here with my crowd, and they were down there in their crowd. Another uh, individual that was part of both worlds was Alan Sarlo. Okay. He's known as uh, AK, and uh, he was part of the skate crowd with the uh, that group down there and surfed up here. Okay. So there was a lot of intermingling, but they had their their stomping grounds, and we had our surfing grounds. Okay. That makes sense. Was it like a like what you would think of as a gang? Like, was there? Did you intermingle in the circles, or did you stay your distance from from one another? Is was it that kind of thing back in the day? We stayed separate with our own groups because you're very, uh, you know, friendly with your neighborhood, and you never want to go down to somebody else's neighborhood and act like a jerk. Sure. Most of the solidification of the gang mentality. Uh, occurred between people who lived in Malibu and the people who lived in the San Fernando Valley called Valleys. Okay. In fact, an old surf punk song was written about I'm a Valley. Okay. It was, the orientation was either you're from the beach or you're from the Valley and the two don't mix. <laughs> they don't intermingle, right? <laughs> there, It's us and them is what they say. Us and them. Well, it was interesting when we were there, I saw either I saw a picture of this or, or the wetsuit was still in your shop. And you and educate me along the way and correct me where I'm wrong, because I won't have every fact correct about you. But 
I wanted to talk about the wetsuit with stripes on it. And the reason I want to talk about that is Texas is not known as, as a surf state, right? And there's people that go down to Galveston and in along the Gulf Coast and people try to surf. The waves are probably a little lacking. But for most of the people that might listen to this, they're probably non-surfers, so to speak. And I wanted you to share the story about the wetsuit with the rings on, like, what was it from the knees down or something? If you could share that story. After I started reading about that, I found that very interesting. So I wanted to bring that up with you. Well, uh, you mentioned it. It started back in the 70s when I did some uh, extensive sailing on the the yacht Blackfin, which was a 75-foot IOR racing boat. And that's a sailboat that races. And uh, we were traveling to some very exotic spot where there were no hospitals and no medical facilities whatsoever. And uh, there were no cell phones. There were no sat phones uh, out in the middle of the ocean. If you had an injury, you were going to die. So when we went to some of the exotic islands, I had a very light wetsuit that I had spray painted the stripes on to look like a sea snake, which is this, the... Uh, the actual bad guy to a shark. The shark's only natural enemy is the sea snake, and the sea snake lives in the southern hemisphere and maybe the latitudes of southern Texas, northern Mexico, down to Argentina, maybe. Interesting. And the sea snake is what I replicated with the paint job on the legs. The kids posted that years ago here at the store. They said, hey, look, this old wetsuit has these stripes on the legs. The idea is that the sharks don't see colors, but they can see patterns. And the pattern of the sea snake, which is yellow and brown or yellow and black, is an alarming thing for a shark to see. So I thought if I put them on my legs, which dangle over the side of the surfboard while you're waiting for the waves, the shark approaching me would say, oh, that's not something I'm going to eat, and vector another direction. Well, and it worked very well. So I guess there was never n- never any uh, shark attacks. You never experienced any of that, right? You got well, yeah, and I saw I saw you had both of your legs when we were there. So so that was a pretty ingenious idea there. And is it safe to say that that's something that you came up with, or did you did you come? Uh, yeah. I definitely came up with that it was way before anybody had ever thought of it in the uh, in the shark world or the research scientists. Uh, that started in the 70s. People that go to those areas that can put on the light wetsuit do color their legs in patterns that the sharks are not familiar with. Interesting. So it's gone further than just the stripes I did. Okay. You know what I find a little interesting is that, I mean, before I saw your, you know, wetsuit with the uh, the yellow rings on it, I had never seen that before. And, and again, I'm not, I'm, I don't profess to be a surfer or in that community at all. But I look at just about every surfer, you know, like we stopped, where were we? We were not too far from your shop there on PCH. We had stopped. There was probably about 30 surfers in the water and none of them had anything like a ring on their wetsuit. And I'm thinking if I'm getting in the water and I might be dinner for a shark, I would gladly wear something like that. And I was surprised when you mentioned it, that more people don't wear that or do they, do they just not give a damn or they don't care or, or what's the deal? Uh, the deal is if you're sur- surfing 
or scuba diving in a shark infested area where the sharks are the main predator, you'd probably want to do something different so that you don't appear like a seal. Yes. Because that's favorite food of the sharks. For sure. Probably we're at Surfrider Beach, which is just down the street from here, about eight, nine yards near the Malibu Pier, and there's no sharks there. There's just no predatory sharks. There may be some sand sharks that are bottom feeders. Okay. An occasional tiger or, or leopard shark, but they're all feeding off the bottom. Okay. Great white is the one that feeds off the surface. Okay. Need food. And we don't have those out here. If okay. we do, it's a big deal and everybody gets pictures of it but if you surfed in shark infested water you should put those rings on as you call them rings we just call them stripes stripes okay yeah i like to refer to them as the proper term but yeah that makes perfect sense and i guess as a surfer you're kind of up on that you know about the different areas and the different types of predators in the water right or or you're kind of dumb to be going out there and and putting yourself in harm's way like that i would think well, if you look at Florida, where most of the shark attacks happen, it's warm water, and the surfers out there and the boogie boarders are not wearing wetsuits. Okay. Are they're just wearing a jacket top or a vest top? You know, just okay. something so a little warmer. Yep. And so they're surfing and boogieing and in water where you see them all the time from the helicopter shots or the drone shots. Looking down, there's sharks ten feet from these guys. Yeah. Going, Hello. Gee. That guy looks at you like food. Yeah. In California, it's different. It's the seals that are the food, and they're black. Yeah. And wetsuits are black. Sure. A little bit of local knowledge helps you overcome that being a food, you know, source. Market <laughs> yeah. For but sure. In Northern California, there are a lot more shark attacks. And if people were to start wearing the stripes or rings from their knees down, there would be fewer of them getting attacked. That makes perfect sense. You know, while we're on the whole surfing topic, and well, I have to say also that for the listeners that they won't see the video portion of this, but Jay and I have the same exact, just about the same exact shirt on, uh, almost the same color, right, Jay? I, this was kind of a a brownish color, but uh, the, I'm repping the Zuma Zuma J shirt here that my brother and I picked up some merchandise from a store there in, in Malibu. So good call. I mean, you you look great in yours, and I look great in mine. So there we go. We're the spoke the Zuma J spokespeople here tonight. As it appears, if they were seeing this on video, uh, I'm older, <laughs> and uh, I'll say wiser. I don't know. Sure, I'm sure. <laughs> This shirt has been washed a lot more than yours. It definitely has. It's called mustard. Mustard. Okay. This whole show will be an educational thing for me. So in your own opinion, what are the top three surf spots? If you were to pick the top three surf spots in California, what's your opinion on the top three for you? There are two of them are in Southern California. One of them is in Central California. So if they look at a map, uh, you have several spots down in the San Diego, San Clemente area. And one of those is called Trestles. 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 Uh, the next good spot is the one right here in Malibu Surfrider Beach, the one that you visited. Sure. And then the other good surfing spots are in Central California. It's also known as the Ranch, the Hollister Ranch. Okay. Northern California has some good spots too, but it's cold and deep and dark and sharky okay 
I'll just stay central and southern California for my surf. Yeah, for sure. And if if my memory, you know, this is natively a, a music podcast, and if my musical memory serves me correctly, there was a song written many years ago called Surfing USA. And I think Trestles is mentioned in that song, if I'm not mistaken. And I think quite a few California beaches are mentioned in there. San Onofre, Sunset, uh, Pacific Palisades. Like they're all in that. I guess they're, well, he does mention Waimea Bay, which is a California, I mean, a Hawaii spot. But uh, that's interesting. And everyone that's in that song are popular spots today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then if, if you were to take that question a little bit further and say top three, top three surf spots in the world, what, what do you think they would be? Well, there's a ranking and Malibu is number one. Okay. It's Malibu Surf Rider Beach uh, for the quality of the wave and the length of the wave, the longer ride that you can achieve at oh. Malibu point down to the pier. But there are spots in the world that have better breaking and larger breaking waves and the news media usually tries and finds out where those are. Right now, in uh, Hasagar in Portugal, is where the biggest waves occur. But the best surfing waves that we're familiar with in the news media is are in Hawaii. Okay. And I found it interesting because I traveled to Oahu some years back, and it was in the summertime, and we went over to Waimea Bay because. You know, we've always heard, ooh, that's the surf mecca. You know, everybody has to surf over there. And I looked out there, and it looked like a lake. There was no hardly any waves, but I didn't realize that it's the winter time is when the really big waves happen out there. Is there truth to that, or is my or my facts off a little bit on on the winter oh, being yeah. the bigger waves? Facts are right on. The waves in Hawaii are generated by storms hitting the island from the north and from their west. Orientation is hard to explain, but the islands can accept waves from any direction. Okay. West directions are the ones that hit the north shore of Hawaii, and that's where you were. Yes. But in the summer, there's nothing there. Everybody leaves Hawaii and comes to California in the summer because we get decent waves in California in the summer. Interesting. Everybody goes to North Shore, Hawaii, for waves in the winter. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. You mentioned earlier that you sailed on a a, a rather large racing vessel, and I guess this was back in the 70s, correct? And you sailed, literally sailed around the world. Was it on that particular boat? Talk to the listeners a little bit about that experience and what were you doing at the time on the boat? Well, uh, yeah, I had brought a little... 22 caliber rifle with me so we could plink the yacht uh blackfin was an ior boat international offshore racing boat uh 75 feet is big for a sailboat back then and even today that's large it had sleeping facilities for 12 to 14 there were seven to eight on the crew and i put twenty six thousand miles on that vessel sailing it through the canals and experiencing a lot of the world I did it off and on. I would come back, and the boat would move to one place. The owner, the new owner of the boat, wanted to visit, say, Galapagos when they didn't allow you to go there. Now that you can go there, that was one spot he wanted to see. 
We also spent some time in Panama extensively. In Jamaica, we spent a couple weeks in Jamaica, which is the same ocean that shares Texas. Mm-hmm. So he traversed the planet as he saw fit because he was wealthy. And uh, I was just one of the crew members. Okay. I had a good time on it and uh, got to bring my surfboard along. And that's part of the, the, uh, the abilities of my knowing the boat prior to his purchasing it. He said, well, we'll take Wagner along because he knows the boat. Okay. So I paid my tuition by knowledge. Interesting. I got to bring my little twenty two rifle and my surfboard. That's very cool. And where do you learn to to navigate such a, a vessel like that? Like where did you get your education from on that? Had you always sailed as a as a young kid growing up into your adulthood or did you go to school for that? Talk to the listeners a little bit about where somebody gains the experience to sail around the world. Like that sounds crazy to me. It starts with uh, starting out on a small sailboat and then moving up uh, or going to your local Coast Guard Auxiliary and taking the classes there. Back then, the navigation was done by stars and radio frequencies, RDF, radio frequencies. There was no satellites up in the space to ping off of and no sat phones, as I mentioned earlier. So you had to navigate with a statimeter and a sextant. And you learn that in your Coast Guard class. It's free to do it. But you better have that knowledge before you leave the coastline, visual of a coastline. Because once you get out there, latitude and longitude is what it's all about. If you don't know your latitude, longitude, and your Greenwich Mean time, the time of Greenwich Mean, sure, uh, then you're going to get lost. And uh, it won't happen today because most everybody has a boat that has a pinger on it. (laughs) Sure satellite somewhere and some airline will fly over you eventually and oh there they are (laughs) it's not like gilligan's island anymore is it (laughs) those were the 70s yeah right i currently have a sailboat now it's called a cal 25 it's a sailboat small has four berths on it one toilet and uh it's a fun little boat to keep and own and it's manageable cost wise okay and do you get out on it much anymore or, or not so much not since the fire. I haven't been on the boat since the fire. It's uh, My time has been consumed with trying to rebuild my home. Yeah, okay. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here shortly. But I, just to kind of switch gears a little bit, over the years you've, you've authored several books, and I wanted to touch on the topic for just a minute. As a kid, did you love to write? Where did the love for writing or, or storytelling come from for you? You take classes in high school, and you take English class and you take writing classes and that gives you the perspective of reading other authors and you replicate other authors in some way or another and that makes it easier on you as a person. Uh, my first book was about riding the rails, western rails. Of, we call it train hopping. You call it hobos. Mm-hmm. It's a about that with a couple of A-list actors, Ernest Borgnine, one of them is called uh, King of the Northwest. And that's what Moving Around on the Rails was about, my first book. The second book was my book about sailing called The Armchair Adventurist. And the copies of that are still around. Third book is The Wax Book. And the book I'm writing now about my military experiences is called Merchant for the Military. Interesting. Well, I I saw the names of the books. The Hobo's Handbook threw me off a little bit because I had, of course, I haven't read it because I just found out about it. 
But it's interesting to find that that that's about train hopping. And what's the backstory on train hopping? Why would somebody train hop? To move from one place to another, or uh, somebody my age at the time, high school, college age, you hopped it just to hop it. The train goes up a big grade. It gets real slow, easy to hop. And you get on it, and you just sit in a boxcar or on a flat car. And there's so few people on trains now. But back then, there were four people on a train. If you got up on the middle of it, you'd never be discovered. Right. Move up and down the coast from California to Oregon to Washington, wherever you wanted to go. I just never went east because it was dry and dusty and just wasn't as cool as traveling on the west coast. That makes sense. And and I guess it's basically like hitchhiking without ever even having to raise your thumb up. You just hop the train and nobody even knows you're on there, right? That's the way it is. Even today, it's still that way. Were there ever any travels like, and maybe I've watched too many movies over the years, but traveling in the undercarriage of a train without actually getting on the train, is that possible to do that? That would probably be uncomfortable to do that, I would think. But It's possible to do you better be secure. You better know how to lanyard yourself in there. You better make sure you don't hang yourself dragging on the bottom of a train. Sure. It's just much easier to get on a flat car. Okay. And lay down flat on the flat car and enjoy the, the weather. Sure. On a box car, that was the best because then you were protected from the weather and you were protected from the wind. People don't realize when you're traveling at 55, 60 miles an hour in an open surface area, it gets cold. Even yeah. on a warm day, you can get cold yeah for sure so i always chose box cars okay where can the listeners find these books at the the hobo's handbook armchair adventurous and then the other one was called surfboard wax a history correct are these amazonable purchases that people can go out on amazon to buy jay yes the latest one the one that was written in 2008 or 2010 somewhere in there that's on amazon or or a you know, one of those sites you can get on it. The other books were self-published. They were proving ground books. The, hand, the Hobo's Handbook's already been ripped off, authored by somebody else. Uh, the Armchair Adventurous, somebody will capture that and rip it off again, you know, rip me off on that one. That's yeah. okay. Part of life. Most of my thousands of copies were burned in the fire. I have several hundred of the Armchair Adventurous left here at the store. I give them out to people that are collectors. I can republish that one. And riding the rest, Western Rails, I could republish that because I have some of the originals still left. Okay. The, the wax book is sold by the thousands because it's uh, more popular. Sure. All the history, it's in the uh, Library of Congress. But the, the new book is a uh, nonfiction. It's about my uh, operations on military bases as an opposing force coordinator. Okay. Uh, that one will be out by the end of this year, and it has the same publisher as the Wax Book did. Interesting. Okay. Well, since we're on that topic, I did have one question, and I asked a guy after, after we left your shop in Malibu, it seemed like we had stopped stopped by one other. We saw a shop leaving to head back to Woodland Hills, and we, we went in there just to look around, and they had a bunch of wax in the in the case and I was asking the guy about you know waxing a surfboard versus what you would put on a skateboard what we call grip tape right 
Why is the wax better for a surfboard than, say, something like a grip tape? Well, we do have derivatives of grip tape called stomp pads. Stomp pads, okay. The reason you can't put something as rough as a skateboard material from a skateboard on is it'll wreck your wetsuit and it'll wreck your skin when you pop up. Oh, okay. Wetsuit is laying on it as you're paddling. Yes. You don't have a wetsuit on like you're in Hawaii. You're paddling with a bare chest or maybe a vest, and the wax doesn't damage your skin. Mm. The wax doesn't damage your wetsuit. Whereas those grip tapes on the top of skateboards, they'll eat you up in a minute. It's like sandpaper. Literally, I mean, that's what it is, a sandpaper, right? And, you know, adhesive. Yeah. That's what it, so we don't use it in the surf industry. We use uh, stomp pads, which are similar, but they're softer material. They're spongier, and they don't damage your wetsuit or your knees. That's cool. I uh, Again, it's, I like learning about this stuff because it's, Again, I'm, I mentioned it earlier. I'm not, I'm not a surfer, so it's just things that we don't think about, And it, but it all makes perfect sense. You have been referred to over the years, I believe, as the savior of Malibu. In your own words, why are you referenced as this? Where did this come from? Yeah, a number of articles have been written about my activities when I was mayor here and council member. That's an elected position, and we do it every four years, just like the big national elections. And uh, the the idea of being the savior is it's just it's not just me. It's a number of people in Malibu here that are convinced that big, building these mega homes, like the movie stars that move here do, and the billionaires that move here, are not what's going to keep Mal- Malibu. Uh, Malibu's name came about because of people like yourself traveling through, have an interesting time, have a meal, say, I, I saw it, I liked it. Where we're losing them, the charm of Malibu to are the very elite people that move here now, and they have their elite attitudes, and they tend not to participate in politics of the city, and they just want their fortress, their 15,000-square-foot fortress, and they don't want to mingle with the commoners. So when I was on council and mayor, I promoted better land use and smaller sustainable homes, which was not popular among a number of people because here they are mega mansioning Malibu, and here's this mayor dude that acts like a surf you know, crud, and uh, who's he to pontificate about what size home we should have? Exactly. It kept what got those rich and movie star and music people here was the fact that we had a modest community where you had an acre property or a two acre property in a three to five thousand square foot home. That was fine, but it's all changed, and I was opposed to that change. Okay, that makes sense. Now, you mentioned that. It was two terms that you served, so you were mayor twice for for the city of Malibu, California. Yes, that, that's uh, we're termed out after two terms. I served my two terms. Gotcha. Now I'm done with that part of politics. Okay. How does a surfer or a or a sailor or you know you, you've done all these things? How does one go from that or go from the waves to public office? Why why politics for you? 
I guess that was you, you kind of mentioned it, right? Like, was that the reason why you got into that to try to stop some of those things from happening to Malibu? What you knew as Malibu? Yes. What I grew up with as Malibu was a rural area with space between the homes and very little crime. And uh, as time went on, these, these properties became so valuable because the music industry and the, and the and Hollywood came here to get away from downtown Hollywood and Hollywood and West Hollywood. And they wanted out of that scene. And once they become very successful A-listers, they can afford to move out here, buy a couple of homes, knock them down and put up one monster home. Yeah. So I was a sheriff for a couple of years here and I dealt with them as a sheriff, you know, a regular duty sheriff. And uh, I got to experience some of that. Uh, Do you know who I am attitude? And when I pulled Celebrity X over uh, with their driver or whatever, and they'd say, do you know who I am? And I would simply say, not until I see your driver's license, registration, and proof of insurance. Thank you. <laughs> right. Yeah, that, it's that holier-than-thou attitude that some people like to possess that's appalling, to yeah. say the least. Prevalent out here, and... Uh, I just bring them down to reality. I just simply say, you have all the human functions that I do. Absolutely. Much, much wealthier than I will ever be. And you do have influence in your industry, the music and entertainment industry. But when you get out in the water, we're all equal. Absolutely. You can't out paddle me. Don't talk. Yeah. And that, and you're not above the law either, just because you have a a large bank account, right? That doesn't, that doesn't buy you uh you know, it doesn't get you out of things that are lawful or, or, or unlawful for that matter. You know, you have to follow by the same laws that everybody else does. In your world, but in the real world, you're just like the rest <laughs> yes. of us. Yes. Yes. Well, you, you talked about the A-listers or the movie stars kind of migrating out to the Malibu area. And that, that kind of segues me into a, kind of another talent that you have. Jay, you, you have, you're a man of many talents for sure, but you have another talent that keeps you busy, and that's stunt work and special effects in the film industry. Talk to yeah. the listeners a little bit about the past and the present, what you have going on and what you've done in and around the music business, because not many can't say that I've ever talked to an actual stunt man and it's especially a pyrotechnics. You know, those are not just people that you run into every day. So I'd like to hear that story, how you got into that and what you were doing with it. Uh, well, the, you said just a moment ago, a man of many abilities or capabilities. It's uh, I call it a man that needs an income because the uh, surf shop revenue, my net revenue out of here is appalling. It can't even pay to have full-time employees here. So, I delved into stunt performing because I had some capabilities on the water. So I started out on movies that were water movies and got my name known around in the stunt industry. And then when you get older, you don't heal as quickly. <laughs> no. so I went a little more cerebral and I got an explosives and firearms license so that I could work in the entertainment industry. So I had done a number of videos because most videos are non-union and uh, you need non-union personnel to work on them. The union that governs our activities is uh, the IATSE, I-A-T-S-E, International Association of Theatrical and Stage Employees. I'm a member of IATSE, Local 44, 
But prior to that, I was doing a lot of the music videos when the 80s and 90s were just slamming with music videos. So I had done some very famous celebrity A-listers videos, and uh, they still play them to this day, and I still see them, and the kids, the young kids, the 20-year-olds can say, I saw that one, that was great. I saw that one, that okay. was great. So it's not Western. About the, the closest to Western I ever got was doing some of Tom Petty's uh, videos. Okay. I uh, finished one uh, a couple years ago for Bob Dylan. So uh, I've done videos for some people that sing the Western slang, but most of it is the rock and roll stuff. Okay. Green Day videos. Uh, I did huge name videos. And uh, I did some videos for the Surf Punks, which was a group in the 80s and 90s that had some following. We did a concert in Hawaii with Joan Jett, Foreigner, and Charlie Daniels. Okay. And uh, we opened for them. And no kidding. I, I had a, a good deal of experience in the music videos. In fact, I worked on one in 2000, which got a Grammy for Best Special Effects. It was the Corn video, K-O-R-N. Sure. At the the one that I worked on and did the special effects for the Grammy was Freak on a Leash. So the Green Day videos, uh, I got the uh, MTV award for that, for best uh, MTV for Green Day Walking Contradiction. So these videos are great videos. You can look them up and play them, and songs are okay. Uh, maybe not for somebody in Texas, but on the West Coast, they're still accepted. And it was a good deal of income for me, so I kept doing the special effects. And now I work on feature movies, and uh, I do a lot of it for the military. Okay. So two Grammys, then, to your name. Is that is uh, that correct? One was, one was a Grammy, and one was the best, uh, best video award from MTV. Okay. That's the Bucket of Popcorn Award, right? The, the MTV had the Popcorn Award or something like that, if I remember correctly. It's It's been a long time since I've watched MTV because MTV is not music television as we knew it back in, you know, what was it, 81 when it, you know, came out and just the whole video thing went wild. It's not the same anymore, but... Um, yeah, they're well, about to be sold as well. Uh, MTV is along with a couple of other network-type uh, platforms are about to be sold but uh, MTV in the 80s and 90s was big time yeah for sure well you from stunt work to pyrotechnics that's uh, I mean you're going from the fire to the frying pan I mean you're not looking for something easy to do Jay you're 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 in these high risk things you're swimming with sharks you're, you're doing all the things that most people stray away from but in the I guess in the famous words of what was the movie uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High Jeff Spicoli said danger is my business right and that that sounds a little bit about you've kind of made danger your business over the years it sounds much like Spicoli there yes or uh, Robert Duvall in uh, one movie and his great line, Charlie, don't serve. That's so, it. Uh, that's an apocalypse now. And a great movie. Absolutely. Well, was it really just the money that got you into the stunt work? Or were, were you kind of a daredevil growing up and, and it was a natural transition for you to move into that? Or was it just like, man, I need some money and they, they need somebody to go fall out of a building. And then you went and 
showed up and you got the job is how, how did that come about for you? The stunt work stunt work in Hollywood on the, on the West coast here, you, you get into it by knowing people and, uh, having a good, uh, say a history of doing the stunts to get into the stunt industry. Uh, I did it because we needed people that were specialized in water stunts and fight type scenes okay. could take all and knew how to use an airbag. So I had a efficiency already going for me just by doing the surf and the sailing stuff, which made it an easier entry for me into that industry. And the special effects came about because I had a lot of firearms licenses okay. that that on the sets as well. They needed uh, armorers on the sets. And part of the, being an armorer is knowing about the special effects, the squibs and the explosives. So you just transition from one to the other. Uh, once you're in there, you're pretty well safetyed by the requirements, by the licensing from the DOJ and from the ATF. Okay. So with those licenses, you can pretty much go anywhere you want and do whatever you like with a permit and a paycheck. Yeah. Is that a pretty small community of people that have all of those things to be able to do what you do? Or is there... Is it more popular or are there more people than most would think that are able to do that kind of work? It's uh, very time consuming to earn the licenses. You just don't go out and buy them. You earn the licensing. Okay. Become a special effects one card in California, which is the most respected explosive license that you can obtain. It takes a minimum of six years of, of experience and training wow. as well as testing by the state fire marshal's office. So getting into that is limited by your time that you can do it. So it's like you have to almost become a doctor of explosives. Yeah, you dedicate your life to it almost, right? Correct. Uh, right now in the state of California, there are about 100 one-card operators, maybe about 80 to 100 two-card operators. And the three-card, which is the lowest uh, entry-level card, there are about 300 of the three cards. The only person in Hollywood that has the machine gun license, the assault weapons license, sawed-off shotgun license, the short barrel rifle license, and the fifty caliber machine gun license with a Pyro 1 card is me. You're talking to him. I'm the only one with the, both the highest gun cards and the highest effects cards. Most people go either into effects or firearms. Wow. I have both. And when I'm gone, there'll be no more with both cards in their name. Is it impossible to get these days or, or what, what, what's your thoughts around that? Because you mentioned that you would probably be the last to ever get it. Is it just a dying thing or is it just too hard to get? It's both of those. Okay. Uh, and I hope somebody else achieves both this, the status of both of the high cards eventually. So I can just say it wasn't just me, but it, getting it, getting into that and keeping it is the hardest part. The license once you're licensed, Hollywood will find you. The music industry will find you mm. because they need you to get a permit. To get the permit, you have to have the license. To get Makes the sense. permit, you have the licensee. You, to get the insurance, to get your A-list celebrity music or, or celebrity on the set, you have to have insurance. And insurance won't cover anybody unless the bonding knows about the capabilities of your pyrotechnic operator on your set or like in what happened in New Mexico, the lack of a proper armorer wound up with a, a dead person. Interesting. 
Well, for all the listeners of the podcast, most of which are going to be music focused, here, here's your guy right here whenever you need to do videos and whatnot. You know, you've got the, you can pull the permits and you, you have all the requirements and all of that good stuff. So it seems like you'd be a pretty sought after guy carrying all of those credentials. And it made me think a little bit about what were, what were some of the most memorable movies or events that took place for you from a, from a special effects perspective? Was there one highlight in your career for special effects or as it relates to special effects that stands out in your mind? Yeah, I think the, the greatest experience I had was uh, uninterrupted eight weeks in Iceland the country of Iceland on a movie called flags of our fathers. And that was a Spielberg Eastwood job. And they hired just about everybody in Hollywood that was credentialed correctly and took them to Iceland. And they made a $150 million movie that did pretty well. And, uh, I tell you being there in a remote country and doing all of this, it, that was something that is in my memory for, for many, many years and will always be in my memory. It was an A-list blockbuster movie, and uh, it went off with only one broken leg by some extra. But after, you know, if you look at a huge budget movie like that, and if you only got a broken ankle or something, then you did pretty well. Right. You're way ahead of the game, right? Right. So well, I think uh, Flags of Our Fathers was a, 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 one of my best memories. I've worked on, you know, hundreds of other movies that I'm just a part of, um, we're behind the scenes. We're, we're one of the little things that we call behind the scenes player or day player running firearms or using explosives. Uh, I worked on Avatar, the latest Avatar. Mm. I was an armorer uh, working with James Cameron, one of the biggest directors and most successful directors in the world. It was a pleasure because the guy is a purist. He just lets people do their job brings the cameras, brings the talent, brings the story, and pulls off some blockbusters. And uh, so I was a part-time armorer on Avatar, and that was a fun show. We shot that here in L.A., and then the crew went to New Zealand to shoot the other half, the outdoors half. I was here for the indoor parts. Okay. Have you been thinking that you may need a little exercise in your daily routine while having a little fun doing it? I may have the solution. Hey, it's Randy Holsey here with Backstage Pass Radio. And about six months ago, I purchased an electric bike from Ecotrick and just thought about using it as a way to kind of get the blood flowing a few days a week. And to my surprise, I find myself on the bike just about every day. Not only am I getting a little exercise each day, but I'm also having a fun time seeing the neighborhood and maybe some areas that I probably would never have seen before I got the bike. Today, my family owns four of these EcoTrick bikes, and we're looking to add a few more soon. Make sure to check out the link in the description below for more details. Was there any... I'm trying to remember if, if my memory serves me correctly. Was there an involvement with the, the Terminator movie as well with you or no? Yeah, I did a little bit of work with Joe Viscozel, who passed away a few years ago, because there was miniatures on that. And uh, Terminator, uh, people don't realize it, but that scene in the original Terminator was a, a miniature mm. where the truck crashes and blows up and those acts take place. 
but that was a miniature. Okay. And, uh, Joe Scozel was very good, and he was the operator on a lot of that. So I learned from him about miniatures. Okay. I've done miniature shows where the explosives are just squibs <laughs> and real big bombs. We just use squibs. What does that mean? What is a squib for the non-pyrotechnic person? What does that mean? Well, a squib is what's applied to the human body. It's oh. a small explosive where the, the energy is sent away from the actor or stunt player, and it puts blood in front of it or dust in front of it or pieces of wood in front of it. So like and a gunshot, a gunshot, right? Yes. The, the opposite of the gun going off is what hits the actor and uh, looks like a bullet or a graze or shot through a wall, and that's a squib. Okay. You know, they're controlled by the ATF, and uh, you place them, the charges, they're small charges, less than a firecracker even, but they're used quite often in the entertainment industry to replicate all kinds of effects that are harmless to the actor or stunt player, but look like fantastic mm-hmm. back to the people actually watching the movie. And those squibs are, you have to be a one card to use the squib. Interesting. In conversation, I, I guess it, I wanted to bring this up for my brother too, but in conversation in your shop, we spoke about, you know, my brother being a sergeant for the, the sheriff's office here in Texas. And the connection you guys made was around the fact that you were part of, uh, was it LA County Sheriff's Office for a number of years and you served as a deputy, right? Was that for a couple of two or three, four years, something like that is what I was reading. Yes. Uh, yeah, I started in, I think 87 or 88, you have to go through the Academy Mm -hmm. first. And I went through the Academy and Sherman block, uh, actually shook my hand and gave me my diploma. Okay. uh, At the time, but LA County Sheriff, uh, is the largest sheriff's department, uh, in the United States. And uh, I was a participant for three or four years. I forget exactly. I'd have to look back at the uh, at the documents. But I was a reserve deputy level one, which means you're post certified, which means peace officer standard of training. I met those uh, capabilities and responsibilities for post certified police officer. So, as a level one deputy, you'd have the same authority and same capabilities of any other deputy but you're volunteering your time Correct. instead of doing it three to five, six days a week. You do it once or twice a week for eight hour shifts. And I did it here in Malibu when we had a Malibu sheriff station. It's long since been disbanded. That sheriff station moved over the hill to Agora and we're building a new sh- new station out here now, which I was part of when, when I was mayor, we orchestrated the construction of a new sheriff station here in Malibu. We'll have a full capability sheriff station right in downtown Malibu next to the library. Okay. Fire station. What drew you to that line of work? And the, and the reason I ask is because, and it was probably because my brother being in law enforcement that I took an interest in it. And I was going to go through the reserve deputy classes, you know, at the, uh, at the Academy and, you know, become deputized, I guess, so to speak. And I, and I, where I would have to go to do it, 
was not convenient. As you know, Houston is very big. And if you say you have to go across town in Houston, that could be an hour and a half. And it was it was ridiculous to go over there late in the evenings and come home. And it never worked out. But for you, you did that, what I wanted to do. But what drew you to that to that work? Human interest. The town was smaller at the time. The sheriff's department was smaller at the time. They made it easier for you to get your post certification. The training facility is spread out in L.A. It's like an hour for me, too. I would go up to Santa Clarita for some training, and then I would go to Biscalou Training Center for other training. So uh, my longest travel time was about an hour, but you could buddy up. You could go with two or three other folks in the same car going through the academy at the same time. Okay. So for us that lived out here in Palisades or Malibu or Santa Monica to get in the car and head over the hill to go to the academy. And the reserve academy is, was only three days a week. You had to give three, eight hour days a week. You were doing your training, your PT, your firearm instruction, your mace instruction, Okay. Handcuffing instructions, all the things that you have to do to be a legitimate deputy, uh, you have to learn in the academy. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you have to go through the academy. Without it, you you just might as well just be a rent-a-cop. Absolutely. For me, it was go all the way, earn that badge, earn that uniform, and do your community right uh, by you know dedicating yourself to law enforcement in your community. And that's why I did it. I, I had the time and I had the energy. And uh, I don't know if I'd do it again now. I thought being mayor was like the same thing. I'd be running the town by the authority elected to me mm-hmm. by the people that live in Malibu. Well, it's a different time now for, for sure. And I've, and I've ridden many times with my brother over his, I think, almost 25-year career with the sheriff's office here in Harris County. And we as civilians are shielded from so much. And I'm sure you have stories just in the short three years, but the general public has no idea what these law enforcement people see and deal with on a daily basis. And until you take that ride, you'll never know. You think it's a cakewalk, but it's interesting to see that side of the fence. I believe so. I think it should be required for just about anybody that wants to get into public service to do a four or six hour ride along with sure. the local PD and experience what it is. It's the nearest thing you have are some of these TV shows that you watch. But remember, they're being very selective and only picking out the coolest car chase scene, the best takedown scene. They chase the bad guy down and they trip him and they jump on him and they gang tackle and arrest him and put him away. All that stuff's real good, but the rest of it is not what you see on TV. The rest of it is writing the proper ticket, informing the general public about proper behavior, Mm -hmm. reinforcing the fact that you can't walk around and drunk and irritate people. Yeah. That's being a real cop is that's the guy. Yes. Uh, Keeping an eye on the neighbor's mailboxes, you know, Mm -hmm. silly things like that that you don't realize. Yes sure that cars are insured mm-hmm. you and i who have insurance on our cars aren't impacted by the guy that doesn't care about insurance on his car exactly these things that real pd and real sheriffs end up doing it's not all glorified stuff no you sit in there for six or eight hours and you'll see what really goes on 
You can almost see and understand why law enforcement gets so tainted with the, I guess, just the, the human race in general, because they're dealing with, for lack of a better term, they, they, they're dealing with the turds of society a lot of times. And it's not everybody, right? I'm saying, you know, they'll pull over guys like you and I who were speeding, we get our ticket and we move on. But think about all of the stops that they make where there's resistance or, you know, hand-to-hand combat or a chase or whatever. That's stuff that we don't have to see, we don't get to see. So you understand how, you know, they they can get pretty down on, on people sometimes because they're dealing with those types of people. And there's a lot of them out there, man. There's a whole lot of them out there. Yeah, um, out here now we have a new call to arms for us what we accuse people of being entitled oh you're in malibu you must be entitled you must be in beverly hills you must be entitled yes if you're a deputy or a pd a peace officer uh, in whatever jurisdiction it is you don't know what you've got until you know what you've got inside that car that's right answer a call to a domestic violence issue that's where a lot of shootings take place you have to go in there with your head square no mind on that cell phone, not thinking of the dog. Did he get his home, you know, his, his food, the right food in the tray? When are my kids going to get back in, from school on time? You've got to focus. Yes. That is tiring. That's why I say sit in that car for six or eight hours and find out how tired you are. If you're paying attention as a good deputy or a police officer, you're tired at the end of your shift and you're jaded because everybody's got attitude except the two or three guys like you or me that you may pull over that go, gee, I'm sorry I was speeding. I'm a knucklehead. Give me my ticket. Yes. Thank you for Yes. Not all like that. No. No, not at all. They get the more difficult distancing. People try and distance themselves from the sheriff or the PD. I used to call it black and white fever. Mm-hmm. Top car drives by and they, they look like, whoa, what am I doing wrong? What did I do wrong? If you're not worried about anything and you're not doing anything wrong, that that cop car is a good thing. Absolutely. Drive with one of them. Yes. It's very interesting that you mentioned, you said ride with one for six to eight hours and you, you're exhausted at the end of the shift. And here's what I'll say about that. And you are 100% spot on. For anybody that hasn't done a ride-along with a police officer, I've done many of them, and every time I get home, I am physically and mentally exhausted, and I've never been able to put my finger on that. But you know what? I think it's for a lot of reasons, because your mind is working all the time. You're looking for things that you normally don't look for. You're dealing with people that you don't normally deal with. And I think that that causes probably a lot of, um, you know, what do you call it? Adrenaline, adrenaline rushes or whatever during the course of that shift, which could leave your body feeling depleted. Right. And I've never really thought too much about that until you you just said it. But I think there's a lot of emotion and a lot of things going on during that shift that people like me who are the civilian we're never privy to that or we don't do it on a daily basis. And I think if you do it on a daily basis, 
it's the norm. It doesn't wear you out like it would. <laughs> Maybe it does, right? But I just remember feeling exhausted after, you know, my brother would drop me off to get my car and go home. I'm like, why am I so tired? I, I just rode around in a car for like eight hours. What's the deal here? You're using your mind the entire time. If you're sitting next to your PD or sheriff or police officer or sheriff, you're in the, in the uh, side seat next to him. People are looking at you like you're undercover or you must be a narc. Yep. And you're looking back at them going, I'm just here on the ride along, but you can't explain that. No. If your brother throws you in the back of the car where the, you know, the crime or the criminals are, mm-hmm. the bad guys, and you have to ride in the back like you do in L.A. County, they, the sheriffs put you in the back of the car. Correct. They have to open it up for you every time they get out and they do a, a search and or a, whatever they're stopping the cars for. But it is tiring because your brother, he may not admit it, but he's got a Sam Brown on, which that's his gun belt and sure. his mace belt, his handcuff belt, and his key belt, and everything else that goes on is Sam Brown. And that, from that point up, your body, you know, is warm by your vest. You're wearing a bulletproof vest. You're wearing a full, you know, sleeve cover, 100% cotton or something that's not flammable, but. You're covered head to toe, and when you get out of that car and you have that badge on, everybody's looking at you, mm-hmm. and you're trying to figure out who's the decent person here, who's the bad guy, who's the person that doesn't even matter, and he's making those assessments every minute he gets out of his car, and he gets out of his little metal cocoon, and he's open to the world. Your mind is going, and if you think it's not tiring, something's wrong, or you yes. drink too much coffee. That's <laughs> exactly right. I remember, uh, Jay, I remember one ride along the first time, I think probably one of the first times I ever went with my brother. It was a it was a multi-agency grow house uh, operation. And um, and I guess there had been, you know, they had been, you know, whatever. I don't want to say too much on here, but let's just say that I was in the front seat of my brother's patrol car and they have this vehicle. I think they called it the bear, if if I'm not mistaken. But it's basically an armored. It's a bear cat. A bear cat. It's the armored vehicle with the turret, the the gun turret on on top. But every big city has one of those. Okay. California, out here in, in L.A., San Diego, San Francisco, we have one, and just about every SWAT department uh, has a bear cat. Okay. Sure, I mean, every big department has them. That makes sense. So it, it would be the first vehicle that pulls up in the driveway of this grow house. And I'll never forget the first one we went to. Of course, the the Bearcat pulls up and the loud intercom comes on. It's like it's like we dive bomb this house. And I'm not briefed on anything. I have no idea what's going on here, right? And I'm sitting in the front seat. My brother, of course, is out of the car, kind of behind the car. They don't know if they're going to be met with resistance. And next thing I know, I hear this this bang and this bright flash of light inside the house. And the only thing, it was, I guess, a flash grenade. You know, they do that to stun whoever's in the house or to catch them off guard. I had no idea. I thought that they were just a gunfight was fixing to break out. And here I am in the front seat. I don't have anything but my fist to, <laughs> to fight with, right? I had no gun at the time. I later became a handgun carrier. 
by getting my CHL. But at the time, I didn't have anything but, you know, what I could find in his car, maybe a pencil to stab somebody. Well, I had no idea what was going to go on in that situation, right? Best thing you had were your two feet. <laughs> run the opposite way, right? Behind the car and run. But then hopefully none of the other deputies or police officers think you're one of the perpetrators. Exactly. Exactly. So So what they threw in that house was a flashbang. Yeah. That's kind of the demarcation for most police departments or sheriff's departments to say, we're active now. We're here. Bring it on. Yeah. uh, You got to get behind something. Your brother was probably behind his vehicle. Sure. Behind the Bearcat. And because he was in in uniform. They will let other officers in heavier uniforms go in first. Okay. So I found that all interesting. And I said, next time, can you at least brief me that something's fixing to blow up inside the house? And I could kind of be prepared for that, you know, just a little warning is all. I'm not asking for a lot here, just a little warning. Well, of all the things that you've kind of done over the years, one, one of the, I guess, cool things that uh, I, I found this interesting, and, and I'll tell you why. So I was a cigarette smoker almost all my life, and I kicked that habit probably, I don't even remember now, probably at least eight years ago, maybe maybe more like 10 years. But I was always a Marlboro smoker. And when I found out that you were actually the Marlboro man, I said, wow, I'm going to talk to the actual Marlboro man, right? So I was wondering if you could share that story with with the listeners kind of how that came to be and what did that mean to you back in the day you know cigarette ads were huge back in the in the day and i don't know what years that you you carried that title of marlboro man but you know you don't see those types of ads anymore share your story about the whole marlboro man experience with the listeners if you'd be so kind Sure. Uh, it was a terrific experience. I got to travel through the West of the United States to almost every really cool state, see some of the most dramatic landscape that I would ever experience. I would not have that ability to do it on my own. We were financed by Philip Morris, uh, the parent company. The ad agency was out of Chicago, Leo Burnett. So uh, it was quite an experience. It's important to remember, though, that there were three Marlboro men at one time. They had the Marlboro man for age groups. Uh-huh. So advertising takes place in ages between 20 and 30, 30 and 40, and 50 and 60. So at the time I was Marlboro man, I was the guy that was the 40-year-old Marlboro man, 40 to 50. So okay. not an old fart and not the young one. Mm-hmm. But that uh, is how they advertise in print. In the commercials, which were black and white in the day, uh, I was about 10 to 15 years old. I was not the guy. I was a Marlboro man from 87 to 93. Okay. Uh, maybe 94. I had seven years, and it paid for my house in Malibu. That's how lucrative the project was. No kidding. It was, it was a good pay. And Co. Uh, Miller was a photographer. Rene Sale was a photographer. So they had different photographers for different times in the ad campaign and for different backgrounds in the ad campaign. Marlboro was also coming out with a clothing line called Marlboro Classics, which was clothing. So they were morphing from cigarettes into clothing, and uh, I was that guy at that time. I, I got to travel 
to Oregon, Washington, Utah, Idaho, Dakotas, and Montana, New Mexico, and Arizona. I would never have seen all those states had I not been in the Marlboro contract. And what an experience it was. Now, we did have to take care of our own horses when the horses were in the scenes. That was not a big problem for me. They provided the saddles, so they moved the horses. All we had to do was pretty much keep them clean, keep them happy, keep them used to us. Mm-hmm. A couple of sugar cubes here and there, carrots here and there. Kept the horse on your favorable side. Okay. People don't realize that the cigarette was never actually smoked in those ads. Mm-hmm. The penciling in by Cytex. Cytex is what you would call now is called a post. They would put it in in post. So the cherry, the red part of the cigarette, and the smoke were put in in post so that you wouldn't have to worry about that on a, out on the field trying to get the smoke to go the right way and the cherry to look the, the red end of the cigarette sure. to look right. Yeah. Post. You just held the empty cigarette. Interesting. So great experience, great paycheck. Got to see the, the Western U.S. I would never have got to experience that ever. And even in my private civilian life now, I could not afford to take that time to do it. But getting paid to do it, I tell you, I'm a happy guy. Right on. And was this something that at the time, in the years that you mentioned, that's all that you were doing for uh, for for income? Was it you weren't like working at stump work or anything like that? Or were you doing that kind of all at the same time? All of it at the same time. Okay. Paychecks at the time for the uh, modeling contracts the stunt jobs, you just pretty much took whatever came to anything that was put in front of you. And you found a figure, figured out a way to do it. The Marlboro contract was about, I'd say 40 to 70 days long, but you could come back and forth. If you weren't needed for a couple of days, you would pay for your own flight. So, uh, stunt jobs are commingled with, you know, the productions way ahead of time, you know, weeks ahead of time, maybe months ahead of time when you're going to be working. Okay. Having the sheriff's badge at the time being a reserve, that was fine. I could tell the sheriff's department, I'm going to be gone for a week and not go on the, on the calendar for a week or mm-hmm. 10 days. Okay. Yep. I only had to do one day a week or four days a month. So all those things commingled well. And, uh, you, I was active. I was moving all around. I, I bet. And here at the surf shop, uh, at the time, I could hire people that could stay a week or two at a time. Okay. Right now, we can't afford it because people want so much. Nobody wants to work anymore. No. So uh, it was a lot easier in the 80s and 90s. For sure. And were all of those ads, were they all kind of the Western cowboy-looking ads with each of the age groups that you spoke of? Or did each age group have a different... I guess, facade or, or image, so to speak, or was it all that cowboy on the horse kind of look and feel? Yes, that was indicative of Marlboro ads was the sole individuality, leaving the black and white TV commercials and going to color print ads, uh, ads that appeared on the internet, that kind of thing. That sole image the horseback image was very Marlboro. Mm-hmm. And later on in the later ads, in the ads in the 90s and the 2000s, 
is where the image was portrayed that moved forward with Marlboro, which was, hey, my clothing counts. My hat counts. Okay. My image in perspective to other people count. I mingle with somebody at the bowling alley who's smoking. Mm -hmm. I mingle with the guy at the drag races who's smoking. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have you with a tennis racket in a Marlboro ad. <laughs> so you don't see him with a golf club in a Marlboro ad. So Leo Burnett, who I don't know if that's still the company that does it, but at the time that was the, the, the main pitch company, that's what they went with. And that was very successful. So why change it? Yeah. Success? Yeah. Yeah. No pun intended. Right. Well, I guess being the Marlboro man back in the day was like someone referring to you as the modern day John Dutton of Yellowstone, right? There was this image that John Dutton of Yellowstone, he's a, he's a cowboy guy, a, a no kind of bullshit kind of guy, tough, you know, looking guy. For Costner, that's worked out very well. Oh, you know? <laughs> yes, it has. Got sidebars going, other little things Absolutely. going on. Here's it before, here's it is after. If you look at it, the Yellowstone is kind of like the Western of Avatar. Mm -hmm. uh, really big success. So, yeah, I, I wish the guy success. He's he's actually a nice person. I have met him. Okay, he's in person. He's like he's not all, uh, you know, uh, full of himself. Okay, you know? humble guy. Yeah, just a regular. I'm. He's working and he's making good money. He sure and is. He, yeah. Uh, he, takes care of his crew. So, uh, and he's a very talented musician too. You know, he's got that going for him as well. That too. And I heard it and I go, oh, that guy, that's actually decent. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting because there's quite a few celebrities, Hollywood, A-listers that have gone down the whole music path. You know, you've got Kevin Bacon that's big in the music scene right now with his brother, the Bacon brothers. You, I think, Kiefer Sutherland is is a musician, you know. Of course, uh, Costner. You know, there's a lot of them out there. Johnny Depp. You know, they're all they're all tied into the music scene in in different you know different forms or fashions. But back on the the, the whole Marlboro thing, were you ever actually a cigarette smoker though? No, I never smoked a cigarette in my life. I, I thought I thought that I had read something about that, which I found interesting. But then it also makes sense when you you were talking about, you know, the cherry part of the cigarette and you know, doing smoke. the smoke smoke post production or whatever. That makes perfect sense. So that's that's kind of kind of funny that the Marlboro man never smoked a Marlboro cigarette, right? Well, I'm sure Daryl or some of the other. Uh, Marlboro guy personalities that were before me. Uh, he passed away about 10 years ago. Uh, he, he was a smoker. Okay. Some of them did smoke. Okay. And some of us didn't. Uh, I don't think the current Marlboro guy smokes at all. He was an athlete. Very interesting. Well, I, I guess it's an image. I mean, you were a model, right? At the end of the day and you're, you're portraying whatever. Yeah, as a model, you just got to kind of sit there. I did Ralph Lauren for years. Uh, that was polo, the clothing line. I did polo. I did, uh, I don't know, I got such a portfolio of print ads. Okay. For this, uh, but every major campaign, I was uh, at least in it once or twice. 
What a career. Well, I wanted to shift gears one last time on you. And, uh, in, you know, in different parts of the country, each part has their own, I guess, natural disaster stories or natural disaster phenomenons that that they're known for you know of course there's tornado alley there's the the gulf coast where i live is you know famous for the hurricanes coming through and of course california is is known a lot for the mudslides and the fires and and i would like for you to talk just for a second about a couple of the fire stories I, i know you've been through quite a few of them out there but can you speak specifically to the uh the canyon fires i think that was around 2000 what six 2007 something like that and then the woolsey fires can you speak to those two fires because a lot of listeners you know i get a lot from houston and and fires like that are not a thing here so i I don't think people understand the magnitude of what these things are and how devastating they can be yeah, uh, that's our big thing that we have to discipline ourselves about here in Southern California, earthquakes and fire. So I relate a fire of the significance of the 93 Malibu fire, the 2007 Corral fire, which was also Malibu, Corral Canyon, and then the biggest one in L.A. County history, the Woolsey fire, which was 2018. So those events are catastrophic for homeowners and property owners and business owners because everything is consumed. So in your neck of the woods, you have a hurricane that comes up into the Gulf and it eats away at Galveston or whatever towns are along the coast of Texas. And you see what goes on in those hurricanes or or in the tornado alley. And the devastation takes place in towns and in communities and cities. And everything's wiped out. It's all gone. And I feel so much more passion for the people that have hit by hurricanes, been hit by hurricanes and tornadoes now because I watch it on the news and I say, those poor folks. Now I say, those people are hammered. And I can relate because I lost my home in the 2018 Woolsey fire. The 93 fire, we lost 325 homes in Malibu. These are expensive homes. And I participated in that by saving a fire truck at local station 70, which is an L.A. County fire station. They were out on duty doing what they could do. And somebody had left an L.A. City fire truck at a very famous celebrity's home, A-list music person, and run toward the coast to get down to the beach. I hooked the fire truck up to a water source at the individual's pool and saved that truck and then moved back down to my store here on PCH and guarded the store from the fire. In the Corral fire, which was Corral and Latigo in 2007, we only lost 53 homes. Once again, these are expensive celebrity-owned homes. And in the 2018 Woolsey fire, just in Malibu, 72 homes in the 90265 area code, 1610 structures altogether. Man, that started way over in Simi Valley, which would be a fire that leaves Houston and goes to Dallas. I Jesus, mean, it's just nuts the size of massive. This thing. Yeah, yeah, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres burned. When you hear about fires and 
in Texas or Colorado, Arizona, Arkansas, those fires are usually brief and they're caused by another event, a hurricane or a tornado, and they're brief. These last for weeks at a time and they burn everything right down to the cement. So in my case, I lost a collection of firearms and a whole lot of my binary explosives, which uh, I use on military bases. And it all melted and burned and just turned to nothing. So I lost my income and my home. But I wasn't alone. A lot of A-listers lost their homes too. Miley Cyrus lost hers. Neil Young lost his. So it doesn't doesn't discern who you are. No. You're going to burn. And uh, it's real tough. And I have so much more compassion for the people in the Midwest now when I see those tornadoes. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, I sit there now and I have a lot more of a deep feeling for their losses. So out here, it's the same thing. It's just a fire. It'll kill you just like a hurricane or a tornado. And uh, I was hospitalized and it was not fun. But I defended my house for 10 hours until I ran out of water. I saw some pictures yesterday. My wife, Terry, had pulled up some pictures. We were over for a visit with my mom and dad. And we were talking about this interview that I was going to do with you. So we were there yesterday. I said, so I'll be talking to to Jay tomorrow night. And one of the things that I wanted to talk to him about was the, the fires. And I said, we've never been through that. And, we, and, and Terry went out and found some pictures and stumbled across my, actually Miley Cyrus's home being burned down, you know, the fire going up the palm trees. And I said, could you imagine just sitting there watching your place? Everything that you've worked for and that you own is in that. And you just watch it go before your very eyes. It's got to be, uh, it's got to be horrible. It's got to be horrible. Yeah. Uh, you have a different opinion and perspective on life after you have a loss like that, similar to losing a loved one. Mm -hmm. Uh, Part of your life is gone. You have to overcome it. Do the best you can with the memories of it when it was enjoyable and rewarding. And I tend to look at my loss that way as the benefits of it are, at least I had it. I had the good life. I had paid off my mortgage in 2016 and I had two years of a decent life where I had no mortgage and I had a job. A lot of people have it a lot worse. Sure. In the process of rebuilding, I'll rebuild the house like for like plus the 10% that they're giving us as an allowance out here mm-hmm. for the loss. And I'm going to build it on the same foundation and have the same home with the same view. And it's just going to be hardened. Mm-hmm. It's just going to have a lot less shrubbery around it and fewer palm trees. And I'm sure Miley's new house and Neil Young's new place are going to be built the same way that mine will be. Yeah. When the next one comes through, I'll have a better chance if I'm still alive. Yeah. My daughter has the house. If she's going to live in it, she'll have a chance. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned, you know, you, you rebuild, you learn things. Hindsight's always twenty twenty. maybe less shrubbery and more rocks or something like that for aesthetics. It was interesting to read and please correct me if I'm wrong. Like there was one side of your house 
that was very limited on, I think it was windows that I was reading. And I think that that was the side of the house that faced Santa Ana. And there's something about the Santa Ana winds. Can you speak to what I'm referring to about your house and the Santa Ana winds? And what do they mean in this whole conversation around the fires? Hopefully, my question makes sense to you. Sure. It does. And anybody that's in a neighborhood in Southern California here or in Northern California now with all the fire prone areas, as well as Texas and Arizona, out here, the Santa Ana winds are uh, winds that occur between October and January. And they're usually between 45 and 75 miles an hour. And they come from the northwest or northeast, depending on where the wind is headed from. And it goes toward the beach. So my house correctly only had two very small windows aimed in that direction. That's why the house lasted for so long. Uh, I have a lot of footage. I can mail, email you the footage. There's 40 second, 46 second uh, in push that you can see the flames going over the house with me with a hose defending it. And eight, nine hours later, all the houses in my neighborhood, there's a 22 second video from a drone type operation and a camera held by Candace. And it shows every house in the neighborhood gone and we're still walking on ours. It's in total perfect condition. Wow. So it's all about the Santa Anas and having that wall of stucco or cement aimed toward those Santa Anas and in your view windows away from the Santa Anas because that's what gets you. Those embers come by at 50, 60 miles an hour and anything that stops them, they, they are just, it's like when you blow on a, campfire makes it bigger yeah you put wind on it put a fan in front of it and the thing just goes off just gets bigger unbelievable and that's the same thing with the santa ana effect out here in california you know it's well i was gonna say it's interesting people a, a lot of times here they say you know category four category three category five hurricanes coming in get out of town and some people just refuse to go, you know, they're, they're going to stick it out. They're going to ride the storm out, you know, and is it dumb? I maybe, maybe not. I mean, I guess dumb is all in the eye of the beholder, but there's something about a fire, like, like wind and rain is one thing and it can be bad. I'm not downplaying how severe it can be, but there's something about fire, man, that when you get too damn close to it, you don't stick around very long. You know, you move and you, you think about the World Trade Centers when they were bombed. And most people would say, gosh, how do these how are these people forcing themselves to jump out of a 90 story window? And they've said that if you get to a spot where it was to jump out that window or to burn to death, you're, you're going to jump out that window every time, right? Because though there's something in the human mind that says you don't touch fire. It's just, it's way too hot, you know? So most people would leave. You're, you're probably, and maybe not, right? Did a lot of people stick around and try to defend their places like you did? Or were you kind of the, the rebel that was there doing what, I mean, I know that's the way you're wired and it's probably the way I would be wired too, but did most of the people just get out when things got that bad or did they stick around and fight them? 
in Malibu, we had probably about 100 to 150 people that got together, managed to get some apparatus and some appliances that could defend against the oncoming fire because they had fire hydrants nearby. They had flat neighborhoods. They had asphalt streets in front of them where the embers could collect and dissipate. So we had teams of younger people that ran around in groups of five or ten and they wrote articles about them in various news articles and uh, TV shows. That, But where I lived, uh, everybody ran. But I reminded myself that I had a skill set that many of these people didn't. I am building fires for movies. Sure. I'm building fires for videos. You understand them, yeah. So I understand them. And I know what the heat tolerances are. And I know how to cover myself from those heat, heat issues. And uh, I'll try and email you this 46-second piece where you can actually see me underneath 100-foot flames. And I'm not exaggerating. When you see it, you'll just go, how the heck did he do it? I cooled myself off, laid on the ground, and hosed myself down and got underneath a truck. And the flames went over us. And uh, my girlfriend stayed in the stucco house until the storm went by. Then you come back and fight the fire. In the hurricanes and the tornadoes, those events that I've seen and witnessed, you know, on the news perspective in your area, they build up so you have a time to to get out. Hurricane comes, you usually get a two- or three-day warning in the Gulf. Get out. You see the freeways, everybody's leaving. Some people stay behind. They got a basement. In the tornadoes, they're immediate. You don't get a chance. You, you, no. It's like it's here. Five minutes, you're 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 done and gone. Mm-hmm. So, but they do blow by and they spot hit. They bam here, they bam here, they skip there. Okay. They go from one town and they're gone. So, those are briefer experiences, and you can survive better from the tornadoes and the hurricanes than you can from the fires. Up sure. in paradise, just one fire. At the same time the Woolsey was going, we lost 86 people in just one fire. So, yeah, fire is, uh, it's, it's difficult. Well, how did, like, the Woolsey fire specifically, does it eventually just burn itself out, or were there firefighters that fought that to completion? Like, they were the ones that put it out. How did that go down? The Woolsey fire started in Simi Valley okay. on the 118 freeway. If somebody wants to Google that, that after they're listening to your uh, podcast, and it went all the way to the coast. It burned all the way to Zuma Beach. It burned all the way to Latigo Beach. It burned all the way to Broad Beach. It burned to the Pacific Ocean. Literally. Okay. Wow. To the ocean is what stopped it. Finally, it just ran out of fuel. The firefighters were impacted by the fact that mutual aid is how California works. So you have fire departments that come in from other areas that have no clue how to fight a WUI fire, Wildland Urban Interface Fire, WUI, W-U-I. They have no clue. They get in the way. Yes. They don't know what they're doing in a, in a wildland fire. They're used to pulling up in Houston or Dallas. There's a house on fire or a building. They Spray pull it up down. on a flat street. <laughs> There's asphalt, there's a hydrant, they haul out their hoses, they get the occupants out, and they hose it down. Mm -hmm. This isn't that way. This will take out your truck. This will burn your hoses. This will melt your windows. So, of course, they're not much of an impact on the fire in in the Woolsey event. And in the 2007 fire, there were 
very effective. Okay. And in the 1993 fire, not effective. I am a perfect witness when they left that fire truck and they ran to a fire station of what goes on. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's a whole different animal. Wow. Well, how many fires would you say that you've been through? So you're a native, pretty much a native Californian. You, you've been in the, the Malibu area for a long, long time. How many fires have you set through over over your years in, in uh, Southern California? You would have to just call the major fires, the ones that make the news, the big ones, are the ones that I've sat through. And I've sat through those ever since my childhood in a community of Calabasas and Hidden Hills, those fires would rage through all the way to the beach. So I've been through at least eight or nine events that made national news, mm. at least eight or nine in my lifetime. Well, I guess some people would say, well, I guess it's all relative. You know, people would say, man, if, if your area is known for fires, why do you stay there? And you could say the same thing about hurricanes you live on the gulf coast why do you stay there it's what we call home it's what we know we face dangers we we persevere we we get through things we rebuild if we have to and it's no different than a fire a hurricane a a tornado everybody has the at the end of the day we're all we all seem to be kind of wired the same you know why would you stay in hurricane alley if you know her i mean tornado alley if tornadoes go through there well it's home that's where we live and and we're not leaving just because there's maybe some impending danger somewhere down the line we as humans we just don't do that we don't and we're geared to look at life at least at our age you know a little more mature we tend to look at life differently than younger people we've established ourselves in our homes whether you're in dallas or houston or fort worth and you're that's home and people in the midwest in springs arkansas whatever town it is it is impacted by tornadoes and you look at it the way of hey the numbers are in my favor yes <laughs> pay off this mortgage yes and I live here and raise my kids and do my thing and the odds are against me getting hit by that tornado absolutely in texas getting wiped out by that hurricane 100 percent. in florida they have the same odds as we do here with with fire exactly you're living with these natural events that you have no way to control the same with an earthquake yep if you look happened last month where 50,000 people died in an earthquake. Uh, They chose to live there. They lived on an earthquake fault. They didn't build correctly. They suffered. They did not beat the odds. Mm -hmm. In California, we build better. When we have earthquakes here, maybe 40, 50 people die. We lose a few buildings here and there. But we are prepared for it as best we can. Now we're building against fires yes building better and smarter folks on the coast in texas and florida mississippi alabama you're going to have to get smarter too because these natural events are going to become more and more numerous and your odds for having a loss are going to become greater yes i agree and I, and I think some of these houses are being built to withstand like 175 to 200 mile an hour winds now. Like, you know, back in the 70s, that was never a thing, right? A, a gust of wind comes along and your house is 
700 miles down the road somewhere, you know, but now they're, they're building these structures to, to withstand a lot of that. You know, we get smarter every day and technology gets better and, you know, but they always say you don't ever live in fear, you know, because if you leave Texas because you're afraid of hurricanes, you're just going to go somewhere else and there's going to be danger wherever, right? Uh, You're never going to escape possible danger. So you're just going to be running all the time. So you get rooted somewhere and you just deal what you need to, what you need to deal with. And that's what you call home at the end of the day. All your listeners are going to be impacted by some natural event sometime in their lives. Absolutely. They will. They have that proximity rule that says one out of seven knows this guy, some actor, I forgot his name. One out of seven, but it's one out of seven is going to experience a natural disaster. Sure. And they're not thinking about it now. They're having a happy time. Their kids had pizza today. Yes. I went bowling last night. Yep. Uh, you know, I went out and uh, shot my 22 and hit the target, you know, so it's going to come. It will. And it's not a matter of if, it's when, right? That's the old adage. Tell your listeners, just like we did out here, if you make it through physically, the emotional part you will overcome eventually and you'll be stronger for it and you'll be wiser for it and you'll look at life differently and what an education it is. Uh, it's not pleasant, but you will get through it. Sure. And it makes you a better person. I think ultimately when you, you live through hardships like that, it just makes you stronger and better for the, for the next thing that comes along. Makes you much more compassionate. Agree. Agreed. Jay, where can the listeners find your shop? If they ever find themselves in the Malibu area, where can they physically find the shop? And then the second part of that question is, can the listeners go online to purchase Zuma J gear online? You, I'm, I'm assuming you have an online presence as well, correct? Uh, <laughs> I wish I had an online presence. Okay. Uh, you know, at my age, it's hard for me to learn how to navigate on the computers. I mean, tonight was my first time on a my pod on a podcast where there's a Zoom meeting that I did on my own when I was at the city. This we had city and staff that got me online sure. and did all that when I was mayor, dude. So we don't have an online presence. You got to come here and take the abuse from the old man. <laughs> and. Uh, to find the place, it's not hard. We're across from the most expensive, successful restaurant in the state of California called Nobu. Locals out here call Nobu second mortgage because going there will cost you a second really? mortgage. Really? I had no idea. number of celebrities go there daily and evening. Every evening, there's A-list celebrities there. The wait time at that restaurant at Nobu is a month to two months if you're a commoner, if you can even get in there at all. So you just don't show up there and, and walk in and say a table for two, right? I mean, you, you have to be on a list to even go there? The waiting list, as I understand it, is between six and eight weeks. No kidding. No, Nobu Restaurant. And We're right across the street from Nobu. Okay. Right across the street from Nobu also is a McDonald's. <laughs> That's where I go. Compare and contrast, right? Most part, smart people that are going to Nobu eat at McDonald's first You're <laughs> and then right. walk the street and go to, go to Nobu because we're talking an average bill there for two people is four to 500 bucks. 
Wow. So basically, eat a Happy Meal first, then go over there and just order bread and water, right? Is kind of the way to do it, right? Bread and water is equal to a car wash. I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, no, it's it's wonderful. The cuisine is is impeccable. The the ambiance, the the beauty of the place, the quality of the food, the staff. It's all a list. It's five star, or whatever okay. you can get. It's, it, yeah, it's an experience. Well, there all the time. Yeah, and I had no idea the place that you know. I of course I saw it when I came out of your shop, but I I had not being a local there, I, I had no idea what it was or anything about it. And, and it's kind of funny now that I think about it, we went into like three or four shops in um, down in the Malibu area. Most all of them surf shops, right? Just kind of spending some time and getting to hang out with my brother. And the funniest thing, every one of them that we walked into the first thing they said was, where are you guys from? <laughs> it's like, do we do we just reek of not being from here or what? And I've, I'm sure I was wearing jeans that day, and I'm not sure what my brother was wearing. But I'm sure most Malibu people are not in blue jeans and tennis shoes, right? So that was probably the first giveaway that we weren't locals to Malibu. So I thought that was kind of funny. But three three places that we walked in for sure said, what brings you guys in today? Where are you from? It's like, why do they keep asking us this? Do we, do we, do we reek Texas? And it's like, we hadn't even talked. So there was no accent thing or anything that they could have picked up on. And so I, I found that kind of funny. Well, you're not alone. When I went to New York on modeling jobs to New York city, they land us in Madison Avenue or, you know, nice hotels in Midtown in Manhattan. And I would walk around in my jeans and, brown shoes and clean t-shirts or button-down shirt and I'd be looking at everything right and left and up and down sideways with a big like look on my face like wow 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 Mm -hmm. and people would walk by not nasty but they would say California (laughs) California (laughs) (laughs) you you reeked of California man this guy is not from here exactly reeks of California how funny that's all it if you're from Texas, uh, unless you're from Austin, uh, you reek of Texas. Sure. I guess so. I guess I never thought about myself reeking, but I guess I do. You know, maybe maybe there is that. Um, well, back to the question. So there's no online presence, but where in so you're on Pacific Coast Highway in Malibu. It's hard to miss you. Right. I mean, Malibu's not that big of a, a city. Yeah. Right. It's kind of hard to in Right there on PCH, it's it's kind of hard to miss. We're what's called downtown Malibu, which is south of the pier, across from the Nobu. The mall that you went to is a very popular mall for, for tourists that cruise through. And it's not popular with their wallets because once they see the prices there, they get sticker shock and they come down this end of town where the prices are more modest. Yeah, man, you you had some good deals on shirts, and they're like, when we walked in, there was some shirts in there for ten bucks, and I kind of, I didn't say anything to my brother, but I, said, I was expecting to pay like fifty or sixty bucks for a shirt in there. So, so Zuma Jays has some great stuff, and at very affordable prices. And I was also going to add to that by saying, you know, you you guys in California 
It's unbelievable. Like what we, we take things for granted, like, you know, a gallon of gasoline here in, in Texas, I just filled up the other day for like two two sixty eight a gallon. And, you know, the places that I stopped when I was there were five, five bucks. They're like double as expensive, right? Yeah. Real estate's, you know, through, through the roof. It's like, how does the average man uh, you know, uh, say a kid that's 25 starting a family making, you know, 70, $80,000 a year. That's good money for that age, right? How do they, how do you afford a $2 million mortgage? You know, I'm in a 27 square foot home, five bedrooms with a swimming pool and a huge yard. And my mortgage is a fraction of what People in California, people in California would probably pay five million dollars for the house I'm in in Texas, and and I can tell you that my house is under five hundred thousand dollars mortgage wise. It's crazy. The the cost of everything out here is uh, predicates how close you can live to the coast. So, okay. a house of twenty seven hundred square feet like you have there with a pool and a nice yard. Something out here like that is in the uh, minimum million to million and a half anywhere. Yeah. The farther east you go from the, the coast to San Bernardino and Riverside County, the bigger counties, the homes are more affordable. Okay. Cheap homes there. The cheap homes in those counties, two and a half, three hours from the coast, are still four to 900,000. Yes. Not be a million, but they're close to it. Yes. How does a young person afford that mortgage? I don't Your know. Have to give you the down payment. That's the only Good way. Good God Almighty! I remember being up in the Silicon Valley. I was coming out of a San Jose Sharks game, and I remember coming out of the arena one night, and I was waiting on the person that I was riding with, and I was standing by the rent car, and in the car park just next to us. I looked inside of the car and there was a flyer on the seat and the flyer, I guess they were in the, in the market of, of buying a home or looking at homes, but there was a flyer and it was a house that was 1200 square feet. That was two bedrooms and had this little postage stamp size yard, right? You know, the yard was just tiny and the house was like 50 years old and it was like $800,000. And I'm, I'm like, good God almighty, that's crazy. Like an old house, it almost looked a little dilapidated, right? Um, it wasn't this nice, fancy, brand new home by any stretch, a little bitty yard. And I'm like, oh my, like, I, I don't know how people or they... I mean, I guess a lot of people just have to live in debt, right? This is basically what it boils down to. They have to. Yeah, you you live with your debt. As I mentioned, you know, I paid off my mortgage two years before the house burned. But that's how it is out here in California, northern or southern California. Uh, You uh, live with that debt. If you want to live out here and own a home here, it is expensive. Uh, There's no doubt about it. You're not going to get what you're going to get in Texas or Arizona or Nevada, you're not going to get that quality of a home for that kind of price. Sure. You're going to pay three times what you did for your home. It's three to four times more for the same thing here. But there's a beauty to California, man. You know, you, 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 you got to give props where props are due. And there's, there's 
a reason why and the the beauty of California, especially there where you you are along the coast is just absolutely breathtaking. It's a beautiful part of the country. That's why we strive to protect it from overdevelopment. And that's why I was mayor twice. Makes perfect sense. It, It makes perfect sense. Is there social media that if, if somebody was going to go look up Zuma J's and get some information, do you have a Facebook page? Does the store have any kind of social media presence at all? It may. It may have uh, social networking. I'm not familiar with it okay. because I'm, I'm a different age group. Sure. And I, I actually let the kids, the, I shouldn't say kids, I let the college students from Pepperdine University, our local university, who work here, when they're on schedule and they're working here, they're welcome to do social media and help the store out. The only thing I'm aware of that we have is something called Yelp. Okay. And, uh, the Yelp things, people say we're okay. Yep. So we're okay. I, I call Facebook Faceplant. <laughs> I call Twitter Tweaker. Uh-huh. I call Tic Tac Tic Tac Toe because it's, it's addictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't follow social media. Okay. I use, I'm, you know, this, like I said, this is my first podcast that I actually did on my own without prompting from some city official. Well, you've done a magnificent job. I, I have to tell you that we had our wires crossed a little bit on the time, which that happens. But from a technology standpoint, Jay, you've done an absolutely remarkable job on your own tonight. So kudos to you for getting on. I I see your nice looking face there. It's been enjoyable. It's been an enjoyable chat. So I appreciate you, you jumping on. And and I know the whole social media thing, man, it's a, even at my age, it's a necessary evil being a local musician here in Texas. It's do it or else. And luckily, I don't make a living playing music. I have a full nine to five job that has been very rewarding to me over the years, information technology. But, you know, if you want to be relevant in anything, you just have to have a social media presence. So I'm on all of them. I'm on the tic-tac-toes and the the tweakers and all of that crap, right? Again, it's just a necessary evil and you, you have to do it or else, you know? Unfortunate thing, but it is what it is. I have got you by a few years in age, and as you mature and you become wise, like this old curmudgeon that's speaking with you now, uh, you'll see that it has less and less value to you. I agree. I agree. If I was 22 to 35 years old, I would probably be very concerned about my lack of skills in social media. But at this point, I'm happy with my position in life. I don't care what people think of me. I just don't give a S. I'm gone through life. I've experienced a great deal of things, many things. I'm willing to share that with people, but I would rather do it face to face or on a Zoom meeting like we are here. Sure. Than we've been on a keyboard. I agree. A two inch screen. I They're agree. Ruin their eyes on those two inch screens. Well, what I can tell you, Jay, is that had I known that we would do this interview, I had carried all of this podcast gear to L.A., and had I known we were going to do this at the time I traveled out there, we would have done it right there in your shop with two microphones across the table, you know, like like we would have done it 30 years ago, right, before all of this Zoom technology, because I think there's a there's a lot to be said for 
relationship building and just sitting across the table from your from your fellow man and just having a, a good conversation the, the way we used to do it a long time ago. I came from that generation too. And, and you're right. I'm a few years younger than you, but I remember those days. And I remember those days well when there were no cell phones distracting us and no internet. And, and I came from that generation. So I get it. I've, we've both kind of lived, we've both lived both of those lives, right? And, uh, you know, it's still relevant for me, unfortunately, but I can, I see each day that goes by, I just, I almost say it'll be so nice when I don't have to wake up feeling like I've got to post something on Instagram or social media, you know, like this interview here, man, you know, I'm going to promote the hell out of it. I'm going to, I'm going to say, you know, if you're ever down in Malibu, you need to go see Jay and those guys at Zuma J's. And I'm going to make the social media post on Facebook and whatever's relevant. Right. So it's just what I have to do. So I'll, I'll keep you in the loop on that and let you know when the show post, I know you wanted your brother to probably hear it so I can send you the link and you can email it over to him whenever, whenever it comes out, I'll keep you posted there. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I thought it was a crapshoot when I asked my brother to give me the number of the shop. I have to share this with you and then I'm going to let you get about your day. But he was telling me, man, this guy has done everything. And I'm like, no kidding. And I said, well, I need to do like a bonus episode. I'm due for a bonus episode on my show. And that would be a great one to do. And I said, give me the number of the shop. I'm going to call and I'm going to see if I can catch him. And he said, well, the shop closed at five o'clock and it was like 10 after five. And I said, give me the number anyway. I'm a sales guy. I'm going to call him like that. Time doesn't mean anything to me. I'm going to call. Maybe he'll pick up. And sure enough, you answered and we, we talked for probably about 10 minutes on the phone there and I explained the show and you said, I'd love to do that. So I'm glad that you um, that you joined. I'm glad that you didn't have to fight Zoom too much. You did a great job there and it was a pleasure living vicariously through you for the last couple of hours. Thank you for all the stories and it's it's been a very interesting chat with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity and for educating me about how to do the Zoom. Now I'll have more confidence the next time somebody wants to do this. I can say, I did it on my own once, I can do it again. And you should. You, you should take people up on that and share your story because they, they are interesting stories and a lot of people will find them interesting. So keep doing that. And I ask the listeners to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, you can follow the show on Facebook at Backstage Pass Radio Podcast on Instagram at Backstage Pass Radio, Twitter at Backstage Pass PC, and on the website at BackstagePassRadio.com. Thank you to the listeners that have uh, sat in and listened to my conversations with Jay. And you guys remember to take care of yourselves and each other. And we'll see you right back here on the next episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Backstage Pass Radio. Make sure to follow Randy on Facebook and Instagram at Randy Halsey Music and on Twitter at R Halsey Music. Also make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on alerts for upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to share the link with a friend and tell them Backstage Pass Radio is the best show on the web for everything music. We'll see you next time right here on Backstage Pass Radio. Backstage Pass Radio.